This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. Do you see different pockets of stress amongst the leadership team with the nursing and CMOs really focused on the workforce issues and thinking about how do we continue to keep our core workforce mentally healthy and moving forward in a time of really shifting care needs across the populations? But on the CFO and maybe COO side, anxiousness about the reimbursement dynamics themselves from the governmental and commercial side, coupled with the operational stresses that the system's under, both inpatient and outpatient, but across the system of care. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Durin. Today, I'm very excited to get the perspective from the road from two of my colleagues who spend even more time than me on the road this time of year with leadership teams, boards, and other groups talking about the biggest, toughest problems that they're working on today. Brian Esser and Jennifer O'Connor, I'm thrilled to have you back as always and to hear what you've been hearing from the road. Jennifer, I'll go to you first. Give us some of the big themes. What do our members, leadership teams, and boards want to talk about and want to hear from us lately? It's good to be back. And now that I have stepped off the road, there are certainly some common themes as we've been out helping kick off strategic planning cycles, leadership retreats, board retreats. Not surprisingly, finance tops the list right now. We continue to have challenging margin situations. Folks can't quite reconcile how they balance the reality of the financial situation, the capacity constraints, and the understanding that they need to grow. I've started calling it the Bermuda Triangle, that you get lost amidst the reality of trying to navigate those. And I feel that sort of sense of frustration a little bit from folks. They definitely want an update on finance, but I think those numbers are out there. They're trying to puzzle their way through how they find their way out of the Bermuda Triangle. Workforce still tops the list. And we have been talking about that now for 24 months. The tenor of that conversation has changed and we're looking more long-term. I do think that's a good sign. There's lots more conversations around care redesign than should we raise our hourly wage. In the long run, that's where we need to be. Certainly site of care shifts, top of mind for a whole variety of reasons. We could dig into that for the rest of this podcast. So I'll leave it there for now. And then I'd round out that list with a conversation around disruptors this sense that we're grappling with so much internally, and yet there's new players that are putting pressure all around us, all up and down the system of care. We got to figure out our own challenges internally and deal with them. And that feels like a pretty tall order. Any sort of update on what the disruptors are doing and where we see it as a potential threat versus the partnership, that's been an interesting conversation too. Brian, you've been at a slightly different mix of organizations. That matches the pattern of what I've heard. How about you? Jennifer had a great summary there and I agree with all those. In my experience last couple of months, it's been this combination of resiliency and angst moving forward. The idea of resiliency, really looking back at the last couple of years, and I've seen a lot of good positive camaraderie across the leadership team, even with the board saying we've come through a really challenging time and we should be commended and we should slap each other on the back. And that's fantastic. But there's angst as they look forward for all the reasons that Jennifer just laid out between workforce and disruptors and revenue pressure. What does the future hold over the next 12 to 18 months? We're really looking at these shorter term timeframes. 
from the discussions I've had, you see different pockets of stress amongst the leadership team with the nursing and CMOs really focused on the workforce issues and thinking about how do we continue to keep our core workforce mentally healthy and moving forward in a time of really shifting care needs across the populations. But on the CFO and maybe COO side, anxiousness about the reimbursement dynamics themselves, the lag and rate increases, both from the governmental and commercial side, coupled with the operational stresses that the system's under, both inpatient and outpatient, but across the system of care. And how do we continue to reinforce the linkages and stem the breakdowns that have historically caused access to be a challenge and leakage to occur, really to those disruptors? There's different pressures, overall angst moving forward, but a good degree of we've overcome some big hurdles. There's big ones to come, and, and we just need to keep focused moving forward. The only wrinkle I'll add to that that I've heard is from smaller and independent health systems. Taking a really serious look at we're experiencing those same challenges would being part of a bigger system or at any range of affiliation ownership, would that help that much? Could we do workforce things at scale here? Would that really help us? Would we be able to adapt to new competitors and disruptors in the market? So they're asking big questions and I think getting really serious about is this going to be our future forever? Yeah, we're committed to it. It's important to us to have local ownership and control. But if we can't do the basics, we might need help. Independents are always good about being open and realistic about that conversation. I think they're spending more time on it now than before. Trevor, it's interesting. The financial pressure right now puts a new wrinkle in that conversation for independents because the idea of lots of acquisition, which we could expect if bottom lines falter, but it's tough to pull off. We get government scrutiny like never before with M&A, and it's just expensive. Can people really do that right now with finances being what they are? I'm curious, were they more interested in talking about non-full asset mergers, things like joint operating agreements, other ways to get scale that didn't necessarily require them fully selling? Or is it still really a question of full asset sale versus staying fully independent? The questions I was getting were more realistic. If we're part of a big system, the financial piece is we're going to get better rates. We're going to have lower costs. We're going to get stuff at scale. And then it was, but can we solve any of these other problems with scale? The questions were about the whole range of how you could work together, knowing that the problem that was probably going to tip the scale was financial. Interesting. And Brian, I'm curious from you, not just because of the recent elections, but have people been asking sort of policy related questions about the end of the public health emergency? I don't get as many of those, but maybe you do. Everyone is trying to estimate when the public health emergency, PHE, will use, may or may not end. We're forecasting that 2023 that will likely occur, barring some major outbreak of COVID here again. But if that goes, there's a lot of downstream impacts and dominoes that would fall really focused on big issues around telehealth, even hospital at home type dynamics and waivers that we've relied and have become accustomed to. Now we're sort of dependent or at least assume that they're going to be built into the system moving forward. So if they go away, what would that mean? And it's really more of an investment side. So if we think about the expense base itself and saying, okay, workforce, obviously, as Jennifer has been tracking, is up. So we have an expense burden there that's 10 to 15% higher than it was in 2019. And that puts a pressure on all the other expenses 
expenses and inability to invest capital in a meaningful way into new technology and telehealth or hospital home or not on a workforce, but also the infrastructure behind that, digital, et cetera, just the connectivity there. Not to mention things like cybersecurity and other big areas where we want to put dollars that may not be available moving forward. There's a lot tied to that on the PHE. The other big one that Trevor and I have been working on is really the Medicaid unwinding aspect of the public health emergency, because as we all remember, Medicaid has been unable to disenroll people from the ranks throughout the public health emergency. So states are looking at, as that starts to wane and end, where do those beneficiaries go? We think a lot of them are probably sitting on both commercial and Medicaid ranks right now. So that'll sort of wash out with hopefully more being caught by commercial. But there is going to be some that go fully to uninsured. And then this idea of this churn population that should be eligible, but due to move of location, of language barriers, whatever it may be, they may lose coverage. So keeping an eye, especially on states that had a big surge in Medicaid enrollment, what happens and how does a provider in the primary care clinic, most likely, or in the clinic setting, help folks navigate that transition? And that's where we need to be active and thinking about, is it going to an exchange product, et cetera, how we get them re-enrolled in Medicaid to ensure that ongoing coverage. You've both spent time with health system leaders, but not necessarily within their leadership teams in more functional groups like CFOs, CNOs, et cetera. As you've worked with those groups, how have they taken these topics that clearly are what they're focused on every day and fall more squarely within their world? How have they gone the next level deeper on both the challenges and how they're trying to address it? Brian? For the financial side, the CFOs tend to be a little bit more pessimistic at the moment and not trying to blanket cover them as a personality type by any means. There are real pressures on the financials moving forward, both the revenue and expense side. But on the revenue basis, a lot of consternation around payer rates, especially on the commercial side, and payers not being able to meet us at the table where we need to be based on just the inflationary pressures moving forward. So I'm hearing organizations ask for 5 10% increases just to cover their expenses and payers coming back with much lower with the, the caveat of, hey, let's put a side deal on the table around value-based care to some degree, even in the commercial population, but that may involve downside risk. So there's interesting dynamics in the rate discussions with the CFO, but in the managed care and contracting teams as well, saying, where should we be going? And that's where we're pushing organizations to think about how do we blend strategic insights? Where is the real growth going to occur at the service line or even the more granular level? And making sure that you're not spreading your chips evenly across everything, but really placing those rate negotiating chips in areas where growth can be occurred and you have a competitive strength. And from the COO side, especially working with some of the larger systems, the idea of systemness, for lack of a better word, coming back in and saying, are we really functioning? And it goes back to some of the things you had said, Trevor, around service distribution, but how seamlessly can we ensure continuity across the system of care from an operational point of view? And where are the breakdowns, handoffs, position enterprise? How do we think about that moving forward? The subsidies we're carrying, what does that mean long-term? There's a lot of operational bricks and mortar, blocking and tackling type dynamics to be overcome. And Jennifer, you've been with slightly different audiences. I was really lucky. I had the opportunity to work with the chief nursing officer of one of our big AMCs on the East Coast, and she was kicking off a new nursing strategic plan cycle, getting together the nursing leadership across the organization to understand key trends in healthcare and think about how they digest and cascade that information into their nursing strategic plan. So you get to see firsthand how some of these big high-level trends we talk about all the time actually work their way into the day-to-day for people who make health systems work every day. And the idea of 
Workforce, not surprising, is a huge issue for them. So they'll probably end up with some work streams that take a look at, we're going to need to build pipelines across our spectrum of what falls under nursing roles. That's not just nursing itself, but other therapists and patient care techs. How do we build relationships and have channels so that students can come precept with us across a whole variety of sites, not just in our flagship inpatient facility? Build relationships. We help train them, but we also really engender a whole new generation of workforce to be excited to come work with us based on the training they've done. It needs to happen. We need to train new workforce, but it's also a purposeful effort to give them the best chance at a pipeline. And how do they do that and make sure that it fits with all of the other onboarding and training that happens organically as part of a nursing organization? So some really fun conversations there. And then what they're really focused on, rightfully so, and it's exciting to hear people focused on this, is this idea of care redesign. We continue to say, look, the workforce shortage will remain with us. We can only train so many. Even if you're the employer of choice in your market, you still will have a shortage. We have to redesign the work. And there's a lot to unpack there under care redesign. But having that conversation with a group of clinical leaders is really pretty exciting. And they're taking some things that I think a couple of years ago, we would have thought, well, that sounds pretty Star Trek. This idea of virtual nursing, that there is a nurse who is remote, sitting wherever, working through a camera in a patient room in an inpatient setting and meaningfully interacting as part of the care team. That's a cool concept. It's not widespread yet. We have a couple of organizations around the country who have really been piloting and leading there. We shared that example, and they're certainly going to have some work streams that talk about when would that be appropriate? Which units would we use that on? What does that mean for how we coach and onboard folks if they're going to work with somebody who's virtual? That's a different way of working. What's the opportunity to support our new nurses if we have a more experienced nurse who's gone virtual, who has a set of tasks, but is also just there in the room? So some really exciting stuff to see them firsthand kind of work through the realities of the workforce challenges that are out there. That must have been great to hear them able to think about the future and not just tomorrow. All right, lightning round here, because one of the fun parts is you're going to get questions from the audiences and who knows what direction it's going to go. So give me one of your most surprising questions or like a new angle that someone took on a problem. The one I got, which was a doozy, was are Medicare and Medicaid going to bail out hospitals here if this is the start of a multi-year trend of really small to negative margins? I could see why a board member would ask that because in the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen several industries get big support from the federal government. Of course, our industry got plenty of support in the last two years. But my answer was, I don't think so. They're under their own set of cost pressures. And we certainly haven't heard any whisperings or pattern that that's their expectation moving forward. That was a different scale question than I anticipated. Jennifer, what's been your toughest question? You have a giant scale question, which by the way, I totally agree with you. Medicare and Medicaid don't have the money to keep bailing out health systems. But I had one on the total opposite end of the scale. Someone at the end of a presentation said, what do you consider best practices in early mobility? Coming off a discussion of national trends that impact healthcare, that was the most narrow question I could have envisioned. And it took me a minute to say, don't have a lot of strategists ask me about early mobility. When you unpack why they're asking that question, it makes a little more sense. It's the capacity crunch, which is such a big problem right now. They are looking for any and 
every possible maneuver that will help them deal with capacity constraints. And if early mobility in the ICU gets people up and moving and helps them get to discharge faster, great. We want to know everything we can about it. It was just an interesting reminder that the big issue is capacity. The way they ask about it, there'll be lots of different flavors. It's interesting. One thing, and this isn't my big interesting question, but it does go to what a mess post is right now with SNF and others being even under more extreme pressure than our hospital members. And can you discharge? And is there anywhere to put them? That topic has continued to come up and something we need to think about either buying or thinking about new assets in skilled nursing and or expanding our portfolio of our home-based products to discharge effectively. But one that came up, Trevor, recently for me was around the whole price transparency dynamic and a fairly brand name member calling and asking, why are we only getting two out of five stars from one of the several companies that are collecting and aggregating pricing data? And I said, well, this isn't CMS stars. This is just a company, a third party, venture back company, giving you a random assignment based on what they think your transparency of data is. And it's not really going to move the needle, but a lot of worry about like, how do we stack up compared to our peers? And why are we being perceived as not as transparent as others? And even to the point that can we talk to the company and figure out why we're there and how do we change our rating? So that just tells me that price transparency, whether you believe in it or not, whether consumers are willing to use it or not, is getting enmeshed across the country into the psyche of providers and starting to be utilized enough on the payer side or other sides, whatever it may be, that people are paying attention to who is being transparent and who is not. It's going to continue to go. We're starting to see the negotiation processes coming through, and it's just going to be a snowball effect over the next several years. What about something that you thought members were going to be asking you about, but you haven't heard about as much? Mine's probably around primary care. If we're talking capacity constraints and decanting and disruptors, there have been a few pockets of those who are really doing an in-depth primary care strategy, but it just hasn't been the type of focus. Like We're restarting it. We had a totally different pattern for the last few years. I expected there would be more about that as a growth angle. Brian, how about you? A question that came in, I think, Jennifer, you had handled. It's the idea of how do we really advance our thinking around partnership beyond just pure clinical partnerships, but into, like, we hear more about RevCycle, which I don't know if we, we recommend that, but how do we think about RevCycle partnerships, IT elements? What are areas within the system that you know you don't have strengths? And is it really worth investing the very limited and precious capital we have in those areas? Or are there new partners out there that we can use to distribute some of this expense burden? Getting more creative uh, around partnerships, either with payers, disruptors, you name it, other companies, and being willing to sit down at the table so you don't have to invest your own dollars into building a competency that's probably already pretty solidly established elsewhere in the, the industry. Interestingly, the question that wasn't asked at a recent retreat with a bunch of leaders across an eight-hospital health system, every single hospital president was requesting additional inpatient beds. And given that conversations around inpatient capacity crunch, that isn't necessarily surprising and they are a growth market. So again, got it. But the number of beds and sort of the assumptions we make that they all needed beds and they all needed all types of beds. What I was trying to get the group to arrive at in this presentation was that they weren't asking the question, but is the system how many beds do we need and where do we need them and what types do we need in these different locations? There's still in some places a bit of a mentality of as a hospital, we have this part of the market and we are expected to serve them and we need this to do that. Don't know that we're yet always thinking like a hospital when we talk about things like service distribution. It's just not the first thing that comes to mind. We ask 
a good question. I'm just not sure we asked the subsequent questions. And it worked. We got the group to a place where they nodded their head and said, I get it. We might need inpatient beds, but we might not all need all types. And so that was a little bit of a sense of victory. At that presentation, I thought we were able to help them ask the question they weren't asking. The one that I really want someone to ask, and I haven't had anyone ask in any of these presentations yet, back to this idea of capacity that everyone's struggling with. Lots of conversations right now about how they add to their inpatient command centers. Many people stood those up in COVID and it's served them well and it's really helping them move patients in hospitals across the system and even out into post-care. What I don't hear anyone talking about is the version of that for the ambulatory world. And I'm biased because I just had my own personal experience running around between doctor's offices, you know, a doctor's office, a phone triage, a virtual visit, two urgent cares and an ED visit later. That was all in one day. That's because no parts of the system could talk to each other. Eventually, it seems like there's some way to extend the concept of a command center into all these moving parts and pieces on the ambulatory side. We're just really getting there on the inpatient side. But if we talk about frictionless system of care, the idea that it's connected and that's a differentiator for us as a health system, we are nowhere near that. And right now, we're frankly just trying to put the parts and pieces together. I get it. But I don't hear anybody asking the question about the ambulatory command center and what might that look like. And I want to have that conversation. So I'm hoping somebody asks it. Great ones as expected. And thanks for sharing all your stories of what you're hearing from our members and what's top of mind and the biggest challenges for them today. We were all together in Chicago recently and had versions of this conversation. So I knew this would be great. Thanks so much for sharing your perspective. And as always, look forward to having you back soon. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments or ideas for episodes, and you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Vizient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at vizientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.